0: The next section in Psalm 119 is based off of the Hebrew letter Nun. And it begins here now at verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The psalmist felt that as he walked the road of life, the word of God made his steps clear. He would not know where to step without the guidance of God's word. Now, it's possible to walk the path of life without knowing where our steps fall. To to use the analogy, we don't know if our foot will step on good ground or on dangerous ground. Oftentimes, we're not self-aware, but God's word will be a lamp to our feet. It will say, now you're walking on good ground. You can be at peace and have confidence or you're walking on dangerous ground. Now, be wary and correct your steps. Simply said, this means that the Bible should help us walk the way God wants us to walk. Now, of course, we use the idea of walking as a picture, right? It's it's an illustration as you walk down a way it illustrates living your life out in a daily manner. But when we think about it, there's a lot of different ways to walk, are there not? Think of all the different words we use to describe how a person walks. They can stroll or saunter or amble. They can trudge or plod or dawdle. They can hike or tramp or tromp, slog, stomp, march, stride, sashay, glide, troop, patrol, wander, ramble, tread, prowl, promenade, roam, traipse, mosey, and perambulate. <laughs> now You know, all these different words show that there's many different ways to walk, right? And each of them says something. Well, the way you live your life, your Christian walk, it says something, does it not? It says something about your understanding of God. It says something about your understanding of his word. It says something about your commitment to him. And how are Christians to walk? Well, we could spend many evenings speaking about that, couldn't we? I'll just give you four quick ones. Ephesians 4.1 says that we should walk worthy of the calling in which we are called. Isaiah 57, 2 says that we should walk uprightly, each one walking in his uprightness. First John, chapter one, verse seven says that we should walk in the light. It says, walk in the light as he is in the light. And then Micah 6, 8 says that we should walk humbly. It says that we should walk humbly with our God. Now, none of these are possible without the word of God lighting our way. And what does it light us like? It lights us like a lamp. You see, the lamp has to be lighted, right? Think about this. It's as if the lamp is lighted by the spirit of God. You can have a lamp that's not lit, right? And some Christians who who, who, are, let's say, unconverted people, they may have the Bible, but it's not lit to them. But when our hearts and our lives and our, our, our whole souls are alive to the Spirit of God, it's as if we have the lamp and it's lit and it lights our very way. So it's a lamp to our feet, but it's also a light to our path. You see, the Word of God not only showed him where his feet stepped, But it also showed him the path you should remain upon. It showed him the next few steps to take. Don't we need this? We need the Bible to teach us right from wrong. Now, we certainly have some sense of right and wrong just on the inside of us from our conscience. But our conscience can be weak. Our conscience can be ignorant. Our conscience can be damaged. The word of God is even higher than our conscience and the word of God teaches our conscience. And so he says, your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. You see, these pictures show us that the word of God is a light and it brings light. It doesn't make things darker or harder to understand. This is a light book. It's not a dark book. Sometimes I don't understand it when people approach the word of God and act as if it's a dark book. Oh, it's the Bible. Who can understand it? Who can know it? It's a dark book. It's not a dark book. It's a light book. And this emphasized the idea of what we could call the clarity of the Scriptures. This was an attribute of the Bible that meant a great deal to the Protestant reformers. What they meant by the clarity of the Bible is that it's basically comprehensible to any open-minded person who reads it. Now, please, we understand that not all parts of the Bible are equally clear and easy to understand. And it's helpful to have wisdom from other people in what they have seen and understood in the scriptures. Yet at the core, the Bible can be understood and Christians do understand it. I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, well, how can you say Christians understand the Bible? Everybody understands it differently. Oh, do they indeed? Indeed. No, they do not. They understand it in great, in great common ground. Think of all the common ground Christians, even in greatly different denominations, have together. They believe in the truth of a triune God. They believe in the truth of the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ. They believe in the truth of our sin. They believe in the truth of Jesus' death for us to save us from sin and death. They believe in the truth of the work of the Holy Spirit to lead us to faith. They believe in the establishment of the church and in the community of believers. They believe in the return of Jesus Christ and they believe in the resurrection of the dead. Oh, friends, I know that we as Christians, we love to debate with people from other backgrounds and other understandings about disputed areas. But don't ever miss the point that the disputed areas are actually a small percentage of Christian belief. There's a great commonality. Why? Because the Word of God gives light. We understand these things together. Taken together, there's a lot in general that Christians do understand the Bible in agreement together. Now, of course, this also doesn't mean that everyone's opinion on a meaning of a Bible passage is just as good as anybody else's opinion. It's really just the opposite. The Bible is clear enough to be understood And that means that some so-called understandings are just wrong. They're not right, according to the text. But then he continues on, starting now at verse 106. He says, I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, I pray, the three will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. I find it very interesting in verse 106, how he begins. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. The psalmist showed a determination of life to obey the word of God. And it was a double decision, right? I have sworn and confirmed. It's as if the psalmist says, it's not enough just for me to swear. I've got to confirm it also. I have sworn and confirmed I will obey you. I will follow your ways. Now, friends, I think it's very important for us to come to a decided place in our life. And I speak to this group here this evening, recognizing that there may be some among us that, honestly speaking, you haven't come to this decided place of life yet. You're still toying around whether or not you'll be fully committed to Jesus Christ and to live your life to the glory of God and obedience to his word. And you're just honestly saying, well, I'm not really fully convinced. Can I encourage you? Can I exhort you? If I could use that word, come to this decided place of life where you could say with the psalmist. Now, let me say it's very important that you make any such decision, any such commitment in your life with the right way, in the right manner, with the right heart, not trusting in your own ability to keep the promise. Not as if it is the strength of your own oath or determination that keeps you faithful unto God. No, friends, it is the work of the Holy Spirit within you. It is the work of his spirit. But nevertheless, it is a good thing to come to a properly understood commitment and place of decision. One of the commentators that I use through the book of Psalms is an old Puritan guy named Bridges. And he tells of a man named Pierce who read a little book titled, Rise and Progress of Religion. And from reading that book, he decided that he would live a more dedicated and obedient life to God. And so he wrote out a covenant with God, and in a very serious and dramatic way, he even signed it with his own blood. But it wasn't very long until he started failing in his commitment to the covenant. First in small ways and then more and more in greater and greater ways. This plunged him into very deep distress, almost to total despair that he considered that the arrangement that he had made with God, it dawned on him, was actually legalistic and more like the Pharisees than biblical Christianity, especially in the way that he was relying upon his own power and his own vows and his own resolutions. So what did he do? Well, according to Bridges, this man Pierce took the covenant to the top of his house and he tore it into small pieces and he threw it to the wind. Yet he did not feel himself free from the promises that he made in the covenant. Yet now he was of a mind to not rely on his own strength to keep those vows but only on the blood of Jesus and on the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit. And this had an amazingly better result in his life. He made a vow, he made a commitment, but he made it in the right heart, in the right spirit, trusting in Jesus and not upon himself. And additionally, when the covenant is made in this attitude, when you do fail to keep it, you have recourse to the blood of Jesus. Do you not? you recognize that he forgives even your failures to live up to such a commitment? And so he continues on. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. His determination for obedience came from a season of affliction, not from a season of comfort and ease. How many of us have experienced the same thing, right? When all is comfortable and easy in our life, we just don't care that much about drawing near to God and we're not so passionate about obedience. Now, there are some blessed souls in our midst who no doubt you find it just as easy to passionately pursue God in a season of comfort and ease as you do in a season of pain and affliction. But many of us are not wired that way. Many of us, our hearts only initially turn to God when we find ourselves in that season of affliction. But despite the many pains and problems of the psalmist, he looked to God's word for a reviving of his life and for it to happen. Look at what it says, according to his word. And so he says, except I pray the free will offerings of my mouth. The psalmist presented these words to the Lord as if they were a sacrifice brought to an altar. That's really the terminology that he's using there in verses 107 and especially in 108. These words, these vows, these commitments were free will offerings meant to show his love and devotion to God. But he ends verse 108 by saying, And teach me your judgments. Friends, it is easy sometimes for us to have a sinful confidence in our own judgments. It's simply for easy for us to say, well, follow your heart. But listen, what we want to do is follow God's judgments, God's heart. And we can trust that as we pursue his heart and his judgment, that he will guide us along in his way. Continuing on verse 109, my life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. The psalmist's life was often in danger, yet his connection to the word of God stayed strong. Even though the wicked laid a snare for him, yet he never strayed from the precepts of God. You see, dangers came from within, but dangers also came from without, from determined enemies, from wicked people, yet he would not forsake the precepts of God. It's a very interesting phrase used there in verse 10. The wicked have laid a snare for us. You see, the idea of a snare is very interesting because you know what a snare is, right? I mean, I suppose very few of us have ever set up a snare, but we've seen it in movies and cartoons and such. You know, it's a little rope on the ground, you know, that you pull when the animal's leg sets in it. And these are actual ways that people would trap animals, right? Well, listen, there's an important principle about a snare, A snare is set upon a well-traveled path that the animal would take, right? And oftentimes that's how we are snared, is it not? We have a well-traveled path in our life, a well-traveled path of compromise or disobedience or something like that. And it's often there that the enemy of our souls sets a snare for us. But by keeping to the ways of the Lord, we'll escape the snares of the enemy because his ways are safe. We don't have to worry about being trapped when we're walking upon God's path. And so verse 111, he says, your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. You see, the psalmist rejoiced in God's word with a deep heart felt joy. He says, your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever for they're the rejoicing of my heart. I rejoice in your word. Therefore, that is my heritage. That was his spiritual heritage, what he was working for and looking towards. That was his inheritance, his earthly inheritance and his heavenly reward. It was God's word itself. Friends, our love, our relationship, our interaction with the word of God. It will not end on this earth because it's well been said that the only two eternal things that you encounter in this world are people and the word of God and the word of God will be with us in heaven. It's right there. Your testimony is I've taken as a heritage forever, forever. This cheers my heart because it tells me that there will be Bible studies in heaven And if God so allows, I will be able to teach Bible studies in heaven. And if no one would listen to me in heaven, then I'll find some angels to preach to. And maybe God will make them listen to me. But they belong to us. These are ours. Your testimonies I have taken. And I've taken them as a heritage. I don't deserve them, Lord. I'm not worthy of them, but I take them as a heritage. And I take possession of it as a heritage. This is it, Lord. This is your heritage to me, your word. And they it is, they provide for me the rejoicing of my heart. And then he concludes right there in verse 112. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever. To the very end, the theme is once again emphasized. The psalmist would never forsake God's word, never stop reading and learning and meditating and especially obeying it. Observe. This is how he begins with it. He says, I want my heart to be inclined to perform your statutes. Yes, it's good to have your eyes involved with the word of God and your mind involved with the word of God and your life involved. But involve your heart first. Give it your heart. You see, the believer feels here in this section that every step is dangerous, right? There's enemies out to get him. They've laid snares for him, but this is why he cried out to God Be the lamp to my feet, be the light unto my path. And with every step dangerous, he can still have confidence. I'm going to make it to the end. Isn't that beautiful? He walks upon such a dangerous path, yet in verse 112, he says, Lord, I'm going to make it to the end, to the very end. Why? Because the same God who lights his path and sustains his way for him every day, every step, he can do it for him to the very end. Can God light your path today? Can he be a lamp unto your feet right now today? Well, then he can do it tomorrow, right? And if he can do it tomorrow, he can do it a week from now. And if he can do it a week from now, he can do it a month from now. Yes, the same faithful God who keeps you and blesses you and preserves you today and has done so today. You're still here. You're still loving him. You're still serving him. Pinch yourself. You're right here. He did it up to this point. He can and he will do it to the very end. And he'll do it in and through the work that he does in his word. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the preserving power that there is in your word that we don't have to fear. We don't have to be in despair. But, Lord, you've seen us through to this point. We're all here tonight, Lord. We're all loving you and listening to your word. Even some of us, Lord, we're tired. It's been a long day. We all feel like we've only received half of what we could have. But, Lord, that half is a precious half. And we'll receive it with gratitude and trust and know that the same God who brought us this far is going to bring us to the very end. Thank you, Lord, for doing it and that you use your word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We love you and praise you in Jesus name. Amen.